0: He's the second-longest-tenured track announcer in American racing. But before Keith Jones hangs up his microphone following 34 years at parks, he'll lend his dulcet tones to our show. Plus, of the three foundation stallions in thoroughbred racing, one line is nearly extinct and a second is holding on for dear life. And that could have a broad impact on the future of the sport. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate.
1: They're about to move in. They race after. And they're
0: off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a head by me. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the iTunes Store, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app. And of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help find us. Although even if I had a red nose that glowed, I don't think I'd be found by the toy makers at America's Best Racing, who for the second straight year left us off the ballot for Best Podcast in their Fan Choice Awards. Good thing they're not the ones delivering presents to all the good boys and girls at holiday time.
1: Three and a half furlongs to go in the Pennsylvania Derby, and Bayern lets it out a notch. Victor Espinoza says go with California Chrome. He's trying to get out from in behind the leader. They come to the top of the stretch. Bayern still holding on to the lead as they hit the top of the stretch. Still nowhere to go right now for California Chrome. On the outside, Tapperture trying to get involved, but it's Byron coming to the 8th pole. Bayern has opened up 3. California Chrome on the inside is giving his best, but he's dropping back. On the outside, Taperture is taken 2nd. It's Byron pulling away. They're coming down to the finish, and it will be Bayern impressive on the front end today. byron has got it by 5.
0: Bayern's win in the 2014 Pennsylvania Derby was one of the highlights of the more than 60,000 races that track announcer Keith Jones has called at Parks Racing near Philadelphia. It was called Philadelphia Park when Jones started there in 1987. It had been Keystone Racetrack before that, and it had something revolutionary at the time, a way to get in on the action. Phone bet. As you can tell, a lot has changed with this sport, but until now, one constant in the racing world has been Keith Jones' voice behind the mic. Keith Jones will finally call it a career at the end of the year, which of course is at the end of the month. So before he reaches the finish line, we're glad to be able to welcome him here to win the Gate. What led to the decision to retire now?
2: I guess there's a lot of things that went into the decision. My my wife and I had been looking uh, for a retirement home down in Texas for some time. There's a number of things down there that attracted us to the area. First of all, her her family, her sons and her grandchildren are all in the Houston area. We love the water. We love the lake style type living. And there's a, a beautiful lake that's about an hour north of Houston. Beautiful community there that we had gone to visit on a number of occasions and immediately fell in love with. So we've been searching for a house for a while because the homes on the water are not necessarily easy to find. And then also in the area where the lake is, my biggest hobby off of the racetrack is playing golf. And there's a beautiful golf course there and a number of the holes that border the lake. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. So when you put those three things together, uh, you know, she can be near her family. We got lake living. We got golf. And then the opportunity presented itself. And and we thought, you know what, before we're too old to enjoy it, let's go ahead. Let's let's pull the trigger and and go and, and find a new chapter of our lives. We're really looking forward to it.
0: We saw the instability for the past few years at Santa Anita as their track announcer situation mirrored their unsteady managerial situation. You've worked for a few different ownership groups at parks. Were you ever concerned that management might have wanted to make a change?
2: Absolutely. I mean, the Greenwood people have been here for quite a long time. So the, the first time we switched over from uh, ITB, International Thoroughbred Breeders, the people that owned Garden State, you know, they owned Garden State and uh, what then was Philadelphia Park and uh, eventually sold uh, Philadelphia Park to the Greenwood Group. So at that point, I was still a pretty young announcer. And yes, the, the idea, I mean, when, when new people come in like that, a lot of times they clean house and get their own people situated in those positions. So absolutely, that was a concern when, when they first came, but they embraced me wholeheartedly to, to stay on as, the, as a track announcer. And then there was a time a number of years ago, I, I can't put my finger on exactly what the time frame was, but there were rumors for a long time that the, that the Stronic Group was going to uh, be buying the track and you know, add it to its long list. So that concerned me, too, for exactly the same kind of reason. You get a new management group come in and they want to put their people in place. But, you know, for the most part, for the 34 years, I I have felt very secure and very comfortable. And that's just been another positive to, you know, to what I've been able to do and accomplish here. I know there's a lot of announcers that have to jump from one back to another for seasonal type meets. I've been able to stay put in one location and and be able to, to, you know, be part of a community without having to jump around and jump, uh, you know, move around for 34 years. And it's been a real, real plus for me.
0: If you go to different racetracks here and abroad, you know that they're in very different types of locations. Aqueduct in New York is in a very urban area and right next to Kennedy Airport, whereas Keeneland is nestled among verdant, quiet, rolling hills and horse country. Parks is fascinating to me because the main entrance is on a road with lots of restaurants, strip malls, and other uh-huh. middle class commerce. What my grandmother, she should rest in peace, would call the avenue. And the backstretch entrance is basically in a quiet, middle-class neighborhood with ranch houses on quarter-acre lots. It looks like any middle-class neighborhood in the country, but with a racetrack next door. How much of that ethos of that neighborhood is reflected in the way you approach your craft?
2: I don't think I've ever really considered the location in, in that regard to have affected the way I approach my job. I mean, I've looked out of this window for a long time and and I have a a terrific view here. We have a lake in the infield. There's a lot of trees in the background and, you know, in the fall. And of course, when those trees turn, it's absolutely beautiful to look at. But I don't think I've ever felt like I fashioned my race call or my style around the type of community that I was uh, working in. I just don't think that's really been a big effect.
0: Being up in that booth all day, would you be recognized by many of the patrons at the track if you walked around on the apron?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. In fact, I have been in places locally, be it the, not that anybody ventures into the malls anymore, but I mean, I've been in in malls before, in stores before, where I might be speaking to a, uh, you know, a sales representative or whatever, and, and somebody nearby will turn and and, and ask me, "Hey, are, are you Keith Jones?" They hear my voice, they recognize the voice, and they will introduce themselves. So, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Keith Jones, the retiring voice of Parks Racing since 1987, joins us here on In the Gate. How have you handled Parks' cutback in racing days over the years, like losing some -some 50-some-odd days a year that started in 2016?
2: Well, Barry, I also I have a a second hat that I wear. It's a, a smaller hat, but I do have a second hat that I wear as the public relations director. So there'll be written material that i'm that I'm able to uh, produce for the track and get out and researching uh, things, whatever be it, keep track of statistical things. So the loss in racing days has allowed me to you know put some of my energies into some of the other things that they asked me here to do. So it really, it hasn't had a huge effect. It it also helps a little bit in the fact that, I mean, when I first started my career, you know, we were doing five and six day weeks. And I'm not going to say it's a grind because I I have enjoyed what I do, but it's a very mental job. There's not a whole lot that's physical about what I do. It's It's about your concentration level and your focus and doing that on a day-to-day basis. You have to stay sharp and getting a little bit of a break in between definitely has helped to keep me fresh over the course of that long time as I've gotten into the uh, final furlong of my career, so to speak.
1: Smarty Jones went the habit of sizzling 44-1, and and the elusive quality Colt turns for home. He is in command by six. He's in command by seven. Look at this Colt, folks. Smarty Jones in hand, wrapped up much the best. He is just awesome. Marty Jones by 10 on the
2: wire.
0: What will you miss the most?
2: Well, there's two things I think that I'll miss the most. First of all is the people and the friendships and the relationships that I've that I've developed over such a long period of time here. I've had a chance to rub elbows and work with a lot of really good people, and I'm definitely going to miss that. And I've always been, one of the things that I've enjoyed, I've always wanted to be an announcer ever since I was a little kid. Uh, before my voice ever changed, you know, I could end ended up with a squeaky, raspy voice. Long before my voice ever changed into what it turned into, you know, I had wanted to be an announcer. And the reason I wanted to do that is I, I'm, I've always been very competitive. And I've loved athletics. I've loved the competition. And I'm obviously not good enough to make a living doing that. So it, it has enabled me to be that part of the competitive nature of, of this sport And, you know, that on a day-to-day basis, you know, those stretch runs when they're going at it or somebody's flying at the end. Well, I'll miss that. There's no question about it.
0: Well, if your voice had changed in a different way, you could have been the Aflac duck. There we go. Like Gilbert Gottfried. (laughs) There's a place for every voice. You just have to find what it is. What advice in that regard do you have for the person who will succeed you? And do we know who that is yet?
2: No, we don't. I think they're going to take a little bit of time rather than try to to rush into it. I know they've had a good bit of inquiries, you know, good number of inquiries into the position. And I think they'd like to take a little bit of time and make sure they do it right. In terms of what they're trying to do, I probably didn't do it at the best time of the year with the holidays and the new year and all that sort of stuff coming up. But there's no natural break in our racing schedule. So my, my mindset was you know, the best place to break it off would be at the end of the year. So that's where, you know, that's how that came about. But I think they're going to take some time to settle in on who they, who they want to be up here. And, I, you know, my, my only advice was just would be just be yourself. You'll create your own niche. You'll create your own legacy. You know, how long that takes, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess. But just be yourself and and be confident in what you're able to produce for the company and, and just let the other chips fall as they will.
0: And we certainly wish you the best of luck in the next stage of your life and we appreciate a few minutes. Thank you so much, Keith Jones for 34 great years at Parks Racing.
2: Oh Barry, I appreciate you having me and you know I I can't say thank you enough to the people that have supported me for so long and have had so many kind things to say over the course of that you know that time. It, it, it's it's hard to express that in words I know my my job is words but sometimes uh, words can fail you and that's one place where it might I just I, I can't thank the people for their support uh, for so long for so much it's really been a blessing and thanks for thanks for having me today
0: Keith Jones is on his way out of the sport and so might be one of the three foundation bloodlines from which all thoroughbred racehorses come what would the extinction of one of those foundation lines mean for the breed That's next as the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. As you probably know, all registered thoroughbred racehorses all over the world descend from one of three foundation male horses who lived in the mid-1700s. These three horses have strange-sounding two-word names. They are the Darley Arabian, the Godolphin Arabian, and the Byerly Turk. The first name of each of them referred to the horse's owner, and the second name refers to where the horse was from. Turk refers to the area we now call Turkey during the days of the Ottoman Empire. You might think that the law of averages would have today's thoroughbreds descending in relatively equal numbers from each of the three sire lines, but that's not the case at all. Most of today's thoroughbreds come from the Darley Arabian, here in the United States, the Godolphin-Arabian line went through the great man-of-war. But man-of-war was not a great sire, and the only notable male descendant of his in the modern day is two-time Breeders' Cup Classic champion Tiznow. But Tisnow's stallion career is now over, and the breeding industry awaits whether any of his offspring will become notable producers themselves. As for the Byerly Turk, that line produced Diomed, the first winner of the Epsom Derby. Diomed was shipped here to the States afterward and basically started populating thoroughbred racehorses on American soil. But the Byerley Turk line pulled up at the 16th pole, pretty much dying out in the 1990s. So that leaves the Darley Arabian line as the winner of the which-foundation-sire line would dominate the breeding industry race. What does that somewhat obtuse situation mean in the real world for the future of the breed? We have a couple of people on board with us to help sort this issue out. In a few minutes, we'll hear from a woman with the moniker of the pedigree goddess, Anne Peters. But first off, we welcome in Joe Nevels, who writes for the Pollock Report website and recently published an article on the Foundation sire lines. Welcome, Joe. So first of all, from a treetops perspective, what factors led to one sire line dominating the other two?
3: Well... I mean, the matter of the fact is one of the three sire lines has proven that it can run and it can reproduce horse, more horses that can run. You know, we're obviously talking about the Darley Arabian here, and it's one that has produced several successful successful sire lines going back to the generations and ones that have proven successful going to today. Going into the more modern times, we're talking about horses that both have to run and have to sell because the commercial market drives the bus so much in breeding anymore that it's not enough today to have a sire of good runners. It has to be a sire of good runners that look good on the end of a shank in an auction ring, or else you're not getting the number and quality of mares that you probably ought to. So there's more hoops to jump through now, and there's a more specific type of horse that people are looking for, and that's sort of narrowing the window.
0: What chance is there that the Godolphin, Arabian, and Byerly Turk lines will become officially extinct
3: Well, the Byerly Turk is already pretty well dead in America. And I say America because I'm only really speaking with authority on the North American sire lines here. There could be some offshoots in Europe, Asia. You know, there are ones that have been sent abroad that you never know. One could come back into the U.S. and, you know, be like Candy Ride or some horse that comes in and becomes a dominant sire and spreads the bloodline even further. But the odds are really against that. With the Godolphin Arabian the chances mostly lie with now, who is recently pensioned. Uh, He stood his last season in 2020. He's really searching for his next son to push the line forward. He's had several sons go to stud. None of them have really hit it off the mark and become the next sort of benchmark in that sire line. He's got a few more crops to come that are still yet to race. He's got a few horses on the track that are uh, good, that potentially could do it. But right now he's still looking for that next horse. And if he doesn't do it, then there are some very fringe candidates that are in regional markets or uh, standing internationally that if for some reason they hit it big and come back, who knows. But really, it rests on now right now, and the odds are kind of shaky on him.
0: By the way, at the expense of sounding like a complete Pollyanna, why is it that we (laughs) only talk about sire lines when it comes to the father when, A, the Y chromosome is such a small percentage of the genomic uh, makeup, and B, there are so many more mares in the world than there are stallions?
3: Well, I don't have a concrete answer for you on that. My own personal thought on that is that sires just produce a lot more foals than a mare will over the course of their lifetime, so it's easier to track a line from sire to sire to sire than it is to jump from sire to mare to sire to, you know, wherever you want to go in the Run of things. If we're looking at it from that perspective, Tiz now has a lot better chance, and you know his, uh, you know, Godolphin Arabian line to survive because we have horses like you know Tiz the Law out there, who is probably going to go on to be a very successful stallion. He's out of a Tiz now mare, so the line itself isn't going to completely die out in Pages anytime soon. But as a sire line, it's just a matter of it's a sire's job to produce as many folds as possible. And I think that's why that's sort of the job of the, you know, that's why we look at the sire lines, because that's what you're supposed to do. The sire is supposed to extend its own family.
0: What effect is there of so many thoroughbreds coming from one foundation stallion?
3: Well, there's the potential for breeding strength upon strength, but there's also the potential for compounding weaknesses. And having hybrid vigor, having horses that come from different bloodlines can neutralize those things. They can, you know, add strengths that might not necessarily be in a certain line, but if there is a certain weakness in a potential line and that one keeps getting hammered, keeps getting hammered, you know, that's something that's going to reproduce and compound itself upon the generations. Uh, This is something that's been a concern for breeders for many years and it's been talked about with the Jockey Club for a while. Recently, they instituted a uh, stud book cap to try to convince people to look elsewhere beyond just sort of hitting the same target every year. The horse is born in, I believe 2020 and onward. If they go to stud, they'll only be able to cover 140 mares, and that's the cap. So beyond that, you have to look somewhere else. And that the goal with that is to try to increase sort of the hybrid vigor in the pedigrees and try to force people to look elsewhere to breed stallions, look at different bloodlines, look at different, you know, sire lines, so I think it's worth trying. I don't know if it's too little, too late, but it's never too late to try something like this.
0: There is no evidence that this inbreeding has led directly to the increasing fragility of the racehorse when you talk about weaknesses. But from where you're sitting, what do you think?
3: I think the way that horses have been prepared and are campaigned is different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But I think it's pretty hard to argue that horses aren't more fragile today than they were 10, 20, 50 years ago. It really seems like the evidence is there. You know, I don't know what studies you were looking at for that, but just anecdotally, horses are running less. We're better at diagnosing injuries, so perhaps that's part of it, too. But it just seems like any time you shorten up the gene pool, you're going to find the problems more quickly because... You can zero in on them. There are fewer excuses as to what's going on.
0: Our thanks to Joe Nevels. Now let's hear some perspective on inbreeding and sire lines from someone who deals in pedigrees and breeding. For that, we welcome in a woman known as the Pedigree Goddess, Kentucky-based pedigree consultant Ann Peters, how concerned are you that one of the trends in breeding over the last fifteen to twenty years is that fewer and fewer stallions are siring more offspring than had been the case before?
4: Well, it's a concern because uh, I think it eliminates the possibilities of some oddball sire lines, all oddball stallions that breeders might otherwise use. They would get they get overlooked. Everybody's chasing the the hot sires and the young sires, the unproven sires, and I think that's a mistake. I think there's a lot of really good proven sires out there that are not getting the kinds of mares they should because of that.
0: When you're evaluating potential matings, how much do you consider outcrosses, in other words, where the male and female have no duplicated ancestor going back four generations, as opposed to having a big-name sire show up multiple times on one or both sides?
4: It depends on the horse, the mare I'm dealing with when I'm looking at a mating. If my mare has a lot of inbreeding herself, what I want to do is to find an outcross stallion. But if my mare has a very outcrossed pedigree, I want to find something important in her pedigree that looks like it's a significant influence in her pedigree and try to double that up in the mating. So I sort of do in every other generation, I do alternate generations within breeding and outcrossing.
0: A U.K.-based expert in horse genetics, Dr. Matthew Binns, a founder of the Horse Genome Project, suggests that every five to ten years, thoroughbred industry experts should evaluate the level of inbreeding. What chance is there that such a thing could ever happen?
4: That's not going to happen. And there's a difference between evaluating the level of inbreeding in the breed and the level of inbreeding in the individual. So I think you have to take the individual over the breed. You can say that the North American thoroughbred is highly inbred, but if your mare isn't, then it doesn't really help. It's it's, it's a matter of information and not so much useful information.
0: Are breeders secretly, or maybe not so secretly, hoping that the Godolphin, Arabian, and Byerly Turk lines can regain a foothold in the industry, at least here in North America, to provide more outcross opportunities and therefore more genetic diversity?
4: But I don't think a whole lot of people are concerned about the state of the the Godolphin and and, and Turk mail lines. They, you know they're they're talking about the here and now. It would be nice if Tiz now had a son that could bring his mail line forward, but it's not changing anybody's lives that he doesn't have a son that hasn't done well as a stallion. So it's not something that people in the industry are, are sitting around at night worrying over now. The issue is the male line itself is really only the Y chromosome out of the whole genetic package of the horse. And that in itself doesn't provide, if you're talking about the breed needing an outcross, that in itself doesn't provide the genetic outcross. The Y chromosome is very small. and I think it's only 84 genes on the Y chromosome, and they're related to male fertility and reproduction. So the male line itself is not the outcross issue. It's it's horses relatedness to each other. So the male line is really, it's a matter of survival of the fittest. If that genetic Y chromosome is not succeeding in producing good breeding stallions, then it's sort of good that it's not carrying forward. Uh, The Herod line is declined in, in large part because The best males of that line had fertility issues, which is directly related to the Y chromosome.
0: Right. It doesn't necessarily speak to how fast they were, just that they can reproduce.
4: Right. Right.
0: Understood. Well, thank you so much for helping to shed some perspective on this. Okay. Thank you. Our thanks once again to Ann Peters, Joe Nevels, and Keith Jones. The COVID-19 pandemics put a dent in lots of businesses, from restaurants to airlines and of course, sports. But racing seems to have weathered the storm better than most sectors, according to leading industry reports. The amount of money wagered on racing is down just 1% from last year before the pandemic ever hit, and that's with the number of total race days down by almost a third. Encouraging numbers, you must admit. Where things get dicey is purse money, which dropped precipitously by 26% for most of the year. You hope with race days going back to the pre-pandemic levels, that number's not as bleak as it appears. But the increased hours on cable TV and the business uptick that brought is encouraging that people like this sport. We hope never to have to prove again that racing can endure, but rumors of its demise were a clear distort. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the iTunes Store, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app, For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Even the Ebenezer Scrooges at America's Best Racing, who for the second straight year kept this podcast out of its finalists for Best Podcast in their Fan Choice Awards. Bah humbug to them. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.